Welcome back to Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD, where we explore the intersection of health and hypermobility, focusing on dancers and other aesthetic athletes. This is co-host Jennifer Milner, here with the founder of the Bendy Bodies podcast, Dr. Linda Bluestein. Our goal is to bring you up-to-date information to help you live your best life. Please remember to always consult with your own healthcare team before making any changes to your routine. Our guest today is Dr. Jessica Eccles, Clinical Senior Lecturer and MQ versus Arthritis Fellow with expertise in brain-body interactions, joint hypermobility, liaison psychiatry, neurodevelopmental conditions, and immunopsychiatry. Dr. Eccles, welcome back to Bendy Bodies. Thank you so much. It's uh, it's a real pleasure to be back. We're thrilled to have you. Thank you. Yes, we are excited to have you back as a second conversation. Our first conversation, we talked about neurodivergency and the connection between neurodivergency and hypermobility. Today, we're going to dive a little bit deeper into that. But before we get started, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, so I am something called a clinical academic. That means I divide my time between clinical practice and research practice, uh, broadly under the auspices of being um, what in the UK is called a um, liaison psychiatrist. So I'm based in um, in Brighton, at Brighton and Sussex Medical School in the UK. Uh, I think in America, this is called um, a consultation liaison psychiatrist. So I'm interested in brain um, body interactions. And my research really has been um, over the years has been unified um, by brain body interactions, but particularly as they relate to hypermobility. So I've been working on hypermobility for a number of years, really, since my first um, brain imaging study of hypermobility, uh, which with colleagues, we showed uh, differences in part of the brain involved in um, fear and emotion processing the amygdala. So the work I've been doing since then has broadly been related to hypermobility. So hypermobility and anxiety, um, chronic pain and fatigue and the motivation for getting into work on chronic pain and fatigue was really that there were reports of um, overrepresentation of hypermobile people in chronic pain and chronic fatigue populations. And I was interested in understanding more about the biological mechanisms of chronic pain and fatigue that might relate to um, inflammation in the body and also um, differences in the um, autonomic nervous system, so the involuntary nervous system. So I've I've spent um, since 2016, we've been working on a big project about uh, pain and fatigue. Also interested in other brain body um, interactions in hypermobility. So um, have been uh, working uh, in the field of uh, researching autism, ADHD, Tourette syndrome. And that complements nicely my clinical practice, which is in adults uh, with ADHD, autistic adults, and um, adults with Tourette syndrome. So my clinical practice in Sussex in the NHS is a, in the neurodevelopmental service. I um, also have um, other research interests. We're, we're interested in um, creativity and uh, we're just getting into a few projects about that. Um, 
And I, uh, as you can see from my background, I like to take photos. I, I do see that and I do love the photos back there. Um, I, I think that we actually said this the last time we interviewed you, but there are so many different things that we could talk to you about um, because you have gone down some, so many really interesting research rabbit holes um, connecting a lot of different things that are um, at the forefront of the minds of many of our listeners. Um, your research areas are listed as neuroscience, psychiatric and neurodevelopmental features of connective tissue disorders and mechanisms of chronic pain and fatigue. I mean, there's, there's so much for us to choose from. Um, before we go too deeply into this conversation though, can you describe what is meant by neurodevelopmental conditions? So neurodevelopmental conditions are conditions that typically start in childhood in which there is some variation in uh, what we think of as brain processing. And neurodevelopmental conditions include a variety of, of things such as autism, ADHD, Tourette syndrome, but also other things uh, like um, dyslexia, dyspraxia, dyscalculia, which is um, dyslexia, but for uh, numbers. So the, the key feature is um, presence in childhood that then carries on throughout life. I mean, philosophically and, and medically, there, there is quite a lot of debate about exactly what is a neurodevelopmental condition. Um, and uh, I think the, the definitions are changing all of the time. It's a very medical uh, model and word. And I think that um, over, over recent years, uh, things are, are changing in terms of how we frame these conditions and sort of exploring the differences in people and their, their strengths as well as the difficulties that they face. That, that is really interesting. I know that this is a very, um, I know this is a time for a lot of growth in looking at neurodevelopmental conditions. And as you said, the definition of a neurodevelopmental condition is changing all the time and is something that is hard to pin down. You listed several different ones. You listed ADHD, Tourette's, um, you listed um, dyspraxia. Can you elaborate a little bit more on what dyspraxia is? Uh, so dyspraxia um, is also known as developmental coordination disorder mm -hmm. and is uh, a difference in uh, movement. So typically we think of people with dyspraxia or developmental coordination disorder as being um, clumsy or they might have difficulties. So when they're growing up uh, with things like tying your shoelaces or holding a knife and fork, um, but the, the presentation of dyspraxia is, um, it doesn't mean to say that you can't catch a ball or write, um, every, every individual is different and will have strengths and, um, and differences. And what's also interesting is dyslexia, dyspraxia, like uh, dyslexia, is often associated with kind of outside of the box thinking, uh, creativity, and um, and other um, other interesting attributes. Um, but we know that it's often also um, co-occurs with ADHD. Interesting. 
Um, and do you see any relationship between the dyspraxia and proprioceptive issues? Are they inextricably linked? Or are they just sort of causationally linked? What do you see? I'm not sure about the causation, um, but yes, there's definitely dyspraxia is is um, is related to this sense of where we are in space. And mm -hmm. um, some of the I alluded to an earlier hypermobility imaging study that we did and um, hypermobility uh, is people um, who are, who are dyspraxic, often are hypermobile. Um, and uh, when we did the, the hypermobility imaging study, we found that a part of the brain that's involved in proprioception uh, actually seemed a bit smaller in hypermobile people than the non-hypermobile people. And that that might be um, one kind of factor in thinking about the brain processes that concern proprioception. But proprioception is obviously a really important um, sense and often uh overlooked and it may be that when we're thinking about strategies and interventions to help people in the future that actually proprioceptive work might be beneficial for a whole variety of things and not just um not just movement that this is conjecture on on my part but it's um by increasing the stability of where you think you are in space, this may help with um, brain, your brain processing uncertainty, and uh, that may actually improve uh, things overall. And we all we know that um, hypermobile people often um, have a kind of kind of quite weak core stability, and that by improving uh, core stability you can improve pain in other parts of the body by strengthening the core. So proprioception um, is actually probably quite ripe for um, investigating further as a um, potential intervention for improving uh, quality of life in hypermobile people. And it's something that I would, I would be really interested to, um, to study more in the future. Well, we would love for you to do that. <laughs> we would love to do that with you. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I think I think we both see in our own practices um, proprioceptive issues across the board with most of the hypermobile people that we work with, and the the teasing that they get. Oh my gosh, you're a high end athlete. Oh my gosh, you're a, an Olympic skater. You're an amazing dancer, but you trip over your own feet or you stumble falling. You know, and so people always wonder how those two things can be linked. So thank you for for digging into that and and sort of explaining that. Um, are there other reasons that these um, the neurodevelopmental conditions, the neurodivergencies, might be um, important in regards to connective tissue disorders? Well, this is this is the um, the million dollar question in in terms of how how are they they both seem to often go together. They don't always go together at all. So there are um, neurodivergent people um, who are not hypermobile, and there are hypermobile people who are not neurodivergent. 
um, it's probably a very complicated process, and that's why we 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 we're really only just beginning to understand. But maybe factors that are influencing the development of connective tissue are also influencing um, neural development, and maybe they are interacting with um, inflammatory processes and autonomic processes, and that. Um, they, they're developing at the same time together. And in fact, we have, uh, I, I think excitingly, I have a student next year who's really going to, to focus on, um, on looking at the something called gene expression, but trying to look at neurodevelopmental gene expression in hypermobility to see if there are any particular links using a technique called transcriptomics. Wow, that's exciting. <laughs> We've done some initial work in uh, in people with um, chronic pain and fatigue that showed some inflammatory differences. But what we would like to do now is characterize that further um, in terms of of specifically looking to see if we can see any uh, genes involved in not genes, gene expression mm -hmm. uh, involved in neurodevelopment to see if we can um, piece that together uh, a little better. And every time I hear the word inflammation, I get excited because that's, that's the approach that I take with, with a large percentage of my patients that even though hypermobility or, you know, um, hypermobile EDS or hypermobility spectrum disorder, they're not defined as inflammatory disorders, but it seems that the neuroinflammation that some people may be experiencing or inflammation due to mast cell activation and that kind of thing. It seems like that approach has been working quite well with a lot of people. And so I would love to have more scientific information about why that might be the case. And, and um, because most of the time, if you do their, you know, uh, if you check cytokines or CRP or whatever, they're, they're not going to be elevated in most people. So your work is super fascinating. Yeah. So it, it is. That's something that's um, that that we're 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 analysing some data on at the moment uh, about kind of low level um, CRP increases and things, mm -hmm. and we published some abstracts on that. So that we that that that's um, hopefully research that should be coming out um, coming out soon. And we also hope to do more research into. Um, uh you know neuro small fiber neuropathy and the the difficulties that people have and that may be a autoimmune uh, inflammatory process mm -hmm. oh my gosh i i hope everyone just heard that because small fiber neuropathy is definitely something that i get asked about a lot definitely a lot of my patients experience and if we can be moving forward with with knowing more about it and and having better treatment strategies going forward that that's really going to help a lot of people so in February of 2022, you published a peer-reviewed journal article titled Joint Hypermobility Links Neurodivergence to Dysautonomia and Pain. And the results of that were really, really fascinating. Can you explain what the results were of this study and what the significance was? Of course. So this is um, work motivated by um, what Jennifer was talking about in terms of what is the relationship between hypermobility and neurodivergence um, in that um, we were we were when we started this work, which we actually started quite a while ago um, for it was part of my um, PhD um, in the kind of mid uh, 2010s. Uh, we uh, we were we had read 
um, several kind of case reports and a few studies in children that suggested there was a relationship between hypermobility, autism, ADHD. So, so there was this um, kind of intrigue in can we can we look at this a, a little bit further? These were relatively small studies, often case reports, um, and case reports are you know descriptions of of single families or a single individual. Um, and so we we planned in our um, neurodevelopmental service in Sussex to uh, do a research project whereby we systematically looked at all of the patients to see if they were um, hypermobile and also knowing uh, that hypermobility was associated with uh, differences in the autonomic nervous system, particularly the uh, problems that people can get from going from lying to standing, orthostatic intolerance. So we thought, let's look at autonomic symptoms broadly in this group and uh, see how they compare to um, uh, non-neurodivergent people. And uh, so we set up uh, we set up this study. Uh, so it was it didn't involve a full hypermobility assessment. It just involved um, a consideration of what's called a generalized joint hypermobility. Now, when we started the study, we started the study um, uh, before 2017. So at that point, um, joint hypermobility syndrome was synonymous uh, with um, uh, hypermobile, not hypermobile EDS, the one before EDS-HT, which was also known as EDS-3. Uh, so a little history of the diagnostic classification. <laughs> and at that point, people were widely considering a uh, Byton score of four or more as in indicative of generalized joint hypermobility. So we 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 had trained uh, clinicians who who measured and recorded the um, the Byton scale. They the patients uh, completed an autonomic symptoms questionnaire, and uh, we recorded because um, we saw they were in a clinic where people were being diagnosed and assessed uh, for autism, ADHD, and Tourette syndrome. We we noted down their diagnoses. Interestingly, this was um, back before, well, at the transition of DSM-4 to DSM-5, uh, which for, for people who are not familiar with is a um, is the American uh, manual for diagnosing um, mental health and neurodevelopmental conditions. And at the in DSM-4, you, you tended to only be diagnosed with one condition rather than co-occurring conditions. So you would typically have an ADHD diagnosis or an autism diagnosis. Um, and so most of our the patients in the clinic who took part in the study only had one diagnosis. We know now with DSM-5 and how things are evolving that actually that probably means we missed some co-occurrences. So some people who were diagnosed as autistic may actually also have had ADHD and, and, and vice versa, but we were using the information that we had at the time. Uh, we had um, 109, um, 109 uh, patients with neurodevelopmental conditions. In the paper, 
we explain why we're using the word neurodivergence. And that is because um, we wanted to take a non-deficit based approach. We didn't, um, uh, we want to recognize that um, these conditions have strengths as well as, as difficulties. And we were also um, keen to uh, follow uh, the lead of a paper that was published, I think in, well, last year, maybe the year before, about using non-ableist language in scientific uh, literature. So that uh, means uh, often people talk about healthy controls. How do we, what is healthy in, in, in the first place? What is healthy? Almost everyone, I'm sure, it would be very unusual to find someone who did not have a condition of some description, but you could have several conditions and still feel in good health. Um, mm -hmm. And so the, the, it's a bit of a misnomer, a healthy control. And also, how do you know if you haven't um, systematically tested with all of the diagnostic criteria that someone who tells you I have no mental health or um, neurological conditions or other conditions they they they, they just might not know that they they could be um they, they may be autistic or have adhd so instead of using the word control uh we um we use the word comparison group so they are a group that have not been um systematically evaluated so we, we don't know whether they're neurodivergent or not. Some of them within that group may be uh, neurodivergent. So we so in, in line with the non-ableist language, we're thinking about things like how we describe these things in the scientific literature. So we had the comparison group um, and we also, harking back to what I was talking about, this idea of the bite and score of four or more being um, used to be indicative of generalized uh, joint hypermobility. We have a really good database. Uh, well, there, there is a good database in the UK of all of the children who were born in a part of the UK called Bristol and Avon in 1992. And they had been tested uh, using that metric at various points during adolescence. So we were quite confident that in the UK, about 20% of the population have a Python score of four or more. And we know as well that um, from a, a wide population survey that used the self-report questionnaire, there's a five-part self-report questionnaire, in a wide range of adults from 18 to over 100, that also consistently found that 20% of them scored more than two on the five point questionnaire indicating that they were hypermobile. So what we did is we compared our neurodivergent individuals to our to the general population figure of 20% statistically um, and found uh, that if we look at all genders, that uh, half of the neurodivergent people scored uh, four or more, and um, only 20% of the comparison group 
and the general population, around 20%, scored four or more. And that difference wow. mathematically was statistically significant. So it was unlikely to be due to chance. And if you sort of, if you if you interpret the numbers, the odds, so the likelihood of being hypermobile, if you were in the neurodivergent group compared to the comparison group, was four. So neurodivergent people were four times more likely to to be to have a Biden score of four or more than the general population. So that's interesting, but we know that there are lots of problems with the Biden score and that there are hypermobile joints that it misses and uh, that. So it was just, it was quite a, it's quite a crude indicator, but it, um, there, is, there is obviously a difference. We also then, because we had the data, uh, the, the 2017 HEDS criteria, they, um, they use a, a slightly different way of, of conceptualizing generalized joint hypermobility. So I think for prepubertal uh, children and um, adolescents, it's six, then it's um, five and four, depending on your age. So we use the age specific um, cutoff and we still found that um, that you were more than twice as likely to be hypermobile according to that stricter criteria if you were um, neurodivergent than if you were in the comparison group. So, and that's actually a really interesting piece of research in and of itself. Sorry, I'm probably um, talking too much. But uh, if you, um, there are very few studies that have, simultaneously reported both metrics if you see what i mean so um we we really don't know because there haven't been large studies like the um the birth cohort studies that i was talking about earlier that um actually tell us how many people have generalized joint hypermobility as as defined in the um 2017 uh, HEDS criteria. So being able to compare the two, uh, that was actually quite um, quite neat, really. So that was that was that was one part of the study. Uh, is there an overrepresentation of hypermobility in the neurodivergent group? And that was the case. And the fifty percent, as I said, that was across um, uh, the genders. If we looked at um, females. Those um, the 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 prevalence of hypermobility was much higher. Was sort of between sixty and eighty percent, uh, depending on the particular neurodivergence. Um, but what we chose to do was to look at all of the neurodivergences together, but the ones that we studied because we didn't look at dyslexia, dyscalculia, and dyspraxia because um, they're not typically seen. Um, under sort of mental health neuropsychiatry services, often assessed in educational settings. Um, so it was the first time to actually consider the, the, the different diagnoses together. And that's because I suspect that there's a lot more co-occurrence than uh, we think. So if you look at a paper that says, this is a study of autism, 
there may be lots of people who also have ADHD, but they might not have been diagnosed and vice versa. So that's why we chose to, to put them all um to put them all together and also it was the first time but we we report the individual differences as, as well it was also the first time that anyone had ever looked at um as far as i'm aware at Tourette's syndrome and hypermobility and we we found the same the same the same pattern there so then that's that's one part of the study so there's a physical characteristic difference in some of the neurodivergent individuals compared to the comparison group we we know and um, colleagues have been doing work um, that suggests that neurodivergent people experience a variety of physical health issues. So things like gut disturbance, um, what I was talking about um, before, uh, the difficulties on standing, orthostatic intolerance, um, allergies, and also experience um my uh, colleague uh sebastian shaw and his collaborators mary doherty um and others just produced a paper that suggested that autistic people experience significant barriers to accessing healthcare, and uh it's really important for us to understand more about the brain body connections uh so that people can get the support that they need so what we found, um, perhaps unsurprisingly, uh, was that there was the neurodivergent group had higher levels of musculoskeletal symptoms and symptoms of orthostatic intolerance than the comparison group. Um, and that that relationship um, that the, the, the greater the number of hypermobile joints, the more the symptoms. So we thought, oh, what's going on here? So the neurodivergent um, group are having more symptoms. The neurodivergent group are more likely to be hypermobile. We know that hypermobile people are more likely to experience um, uh, problems like orthostatic intolerance and pain is hypermobility a potential reason for why neurodivergent people are experiencing increased number of physical health symptoms so that was our second question and we addressed that uh, through something called a mediation analysis which is where you have a number of different variables that are all related and you want to see if the relationship between two things, so that was neurodivergence and physical health symptoms, is in fact um, being exerted, that relationship, by a different variable. And so we had hypermobility as the, um, the mediator variable. So uh, there are things called mediators, and these are potential mechanisms to explain the relationship. And then there are things called moderators, which are things that alter the strength or the direction of the relationship. So we did a mediation analysis and it looks like uh, hypermobility is somehow implicated in this relationship between neurodivergence and um, physical health symptoms that we described, which were the orthostatic intolerance and uh, musculoskeletal symptoms. So it was a 
relatively small sample in that we had 109 neurodivergent individuals. I think the hypermobility data is 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 pretty robust in comparing it to the 6,000 um, uh, adolescents in the general population. Uh, but it needs other people need to to repeat these studies, and it would be fantastic if um, a bit like uh, we later did in our mechanisms of chronic pain and fatigue study, that we um, in that we did the Brighton scale, we did the JHS diagnostic criteria, the Brighton criteria, and the HEDS two thousand and seventeen criteria. No doubt, by the time someone um, does that project, the HEDS criteria may have changed again but characterizing um having a more in-depth characterization of hypermobility in this group would be really important because it would be interesting to know really wouldn't it um is it um is it the hypermobility the joint hypermobility that seems to be prominent or is it other features like skin features because i'm becoming increasingly and perhaps i should have mentioned this earlier uh, increasingly convinced that hypermobility is just a marker of whole body differences that are related to connective tissue rather than the thing itself. So we talk about joint hypermobility, but actually this is this is a difference in how the body is built and connected. It's a difference in the connective tissue. Um, but then, then it can get confusing because you think connective tissue disorders, is this lupus? Is this um, scleroderma? Uh, whereas, so I'm thinking of the hereditary disorders of, of connective tissue. But um, yes, it would be really lovely in a much larger sample to characterize the um, connective tissue features of neurodivergent people. Also, it would be it would be interesting, and we do have some work that we are we are kind of analyzing and preparing for publication about this, but to look at a large number of hypermobile people and to see how many of them are neurodivergent, because we don't know that from, from this study. We, we couldn't say at all because we've only looked at the relationship in one direction. Um, so why I spend quite a bit of time talking about, uh, about the processes and the findings, but why is this important? Well, it's really important, uh, I think, uh, for a number of reasons. One is raising the profile, recognition and awareness of all three things. So hypermobility, which is often overlooked or poorly understood. Neurodivergence, which is often overlooked and poorly understood, especially in um, non male presentations and also the importance and this is where I obviously really um, you know feel strongly as a liaison psychiatrist of when you were thinking about someone's brain about thinking about their body and when you're thinking about someone's body about thinking about their brain at the same time and the reason why we really want to improve all of those things is so that people can recognize what's going on and get access to the support that they need. Um, but I suppose what we're also realizing, and I alluded to that with the, with the paper that I was talking about that a BSMS colleague published, is that maybe our services and spaces are not necessarily accessible 
um, in the right way. So um, maybe if you are hypermobile on a pain management program, perhaps perhaps there could be adjustments and accommodations made in case you were neurodivergent as well. If you are neurodivergent, maybe you could be hypermobile. And um, again, um, things may need to be more accessible. So it's there's there's a lot of things that um, um, that we we should be thinking about when we think about this relationship. So kind of increased recognition, screening, accessibility. And really, yeah, education um, amongst um, amongst uh, doctors, healthcare professionals, a variety of healthcare professionals, and also um, patients themselves. You know, I mean, patients um, are often really curious and know so much more than their doctors. Um, so just trying to just trying to raise awareness. And what I actually found quite interesting was. Um, so when when um, some of the feedback that I got when when the paper was published was kind of like oh we've known this for years and years and years why why isn't anyone doing anything about it uh, which is absolutely true but the the fact is we haven't actually known it for years and years it's been suspected the patients have known it for years and years um, but the scientific world has there are there are not a huge number of studies. Whilst we were doing this study, this the big study in Sweden, the population uh, birth cohort, uh, not the birth cohort, the population study suggested uh, that you were more likely to be autistic or have ADHD if you had a diagnosis of uh, JHS or EDS. Um, but that um, that's it was a big study in a whole population, uh, but we we need more more work to confirm it. Yeah, that that so much of that <laughs> that I'm thinking about and processing. And as you said, there are so many overlaps between the two populations um, and the issues that they deal with. And one of the things we hear a lot um, from the hypermobile population is people think I'm crazy or people tell me there's nothing wrong or that I'm imagining this and they can't understand why everybody else can do these things. And they can't without hurting themselves or getting out of breath or whatever the case may be. And so it's really hard to get a diagnosis. And I see that as well. I have family members uh, with autism and they're very passionate about digging into the research as well. And you see so many people who are diagnosed later in life as adults and going, oh my gosh, now it makes so much sense. Now I understand why people told me it was all in my head, they, I was just being sensitive or whatever. So just that emotional overlap of having something that's going on that doctors don't recognize and having them confirmed and going, I'm not crazy, I am hypermobile, I'm not crazy, I'm autistic. And, and, and getting that reassurance with that diagnosis of here's an explanation why. So drawing that connection between the two groups, I think is a really important one. So I, I really appreciate the work that you have done with this. Thank you. No, thank you. Thank you. But I, I think it is also in, important to say that we can't overgeneralize. And um, this is an interesting connection. And I think mm -hmm. I find it a very interesting connection. But not all neurodivergent people are hypermobile and vice versa. Absolutely. I wanted to just go back to one specific thing because it was so fascinating to me. So are you saying that, that if somebody had one hypermobile joint and then somebody else had four hypermobile joints, 
or I should say four versus six, because then, then they would actually score on the hypermobile category, right? That the people who had a higher bite and score, a higher number of hypermobile joints, they generally had more symptoms than the people who had fewer? Yes. Uh, this is regardless of whether where you draw the um, the cutoff in terms okay. of what we call hypermobility. So um, if you look at the comparison group and the neurodivergent group together, all, all people, um, and then you plot uh, the Biden score on one axis and the number of symptoms, there is a significant relationship between um, the number of um, hypermobile, the, the Biden score, which is not the number of hypermobile joints. Thank you for that clarification. <laughs> yes, absolutely correct. But yeah, yes. but yeah, but it's just simpler to say that. But yes, that was, and I, I, I brought it up. So um, yes, that was what we found. And that's actually uh, consistent uh, with another paper that we published um, in December in the American Journal of Medical Genetics about multimorbidity at the interface of um, physical and psychological health was, um, this was in a sample of patients uh, with uh, psychiatric issues. So, you know, using mental health services. Uh, that um, the hypermobile patients had more autonomic symptoms, um, so that they're all mental health patients, and then the hypermobile ones have more autonomic symptoms than the non-hypermobile ones. And again, there are those um, those relationships. That's so interesting. That's yeah. That's so yeah. We just need to keep doing more research, right? We need to keep. <laughs> drilling down on this <laughs> well we need more we need you know people like dr eccles who are really i yes. love how you describe things i love how you how you think and the quality of research that you're doing because and i and i know that's what you that you mean jen right of course that's that's what you mean like but but we yeah we need more more um people who are really asking the right questions that really right. are going to help people so um i think it's just yeah super super great the work that you're doing yeah. But it is actually quite a small field in terms of um, pro um, professional researchers in um, hypermobility. Uh, hmm. It's it's it, it, it's not um, it's it, it it's not like some of the other uh, conditions. But hopefully, I'm I'm going to be presenting at the EDS conference in uh, September. It will be really fantastic to meet up with other hypermobility researchers from across the world. Absolutely. Um, moving from this or continuing on with this, what have you seen about how anxiety is linked to joint hypermobility, neurodivergency, and autonomic nervous system dysfunction? Ah, well, this is interesting, and we could have a whole um, whole podcast on uh, hypermobility and anxiety. Um, Yes. So that was where that was the um, that was the original work that I was doing was motivated by this relationship that has been systematically um, shown, you know, study after study after study that um, suggests as yeah there is a relationship between hypermobility and anxiety. Uh, we, I think that relationship is driven by well, and we have data to 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 show. Uh, that's driven by um, an overactive um, autonomic nervous system, uh, which is, I think, related to the, the way the body is built and how the vasculature and the cardiovascular system 
uh, work and also maybe um, like um, Linda was saying, uh, um, you know, there, there might be autoimmune and inflammatory processes that also uh, contribute to um, reasons why the um, involuntary nervous system is more finely tuned in hypermobile people. I don't, I'm not saying uh, that uh, autonomic dysfunction is anxiety or that, uh, that, you know, if you have a diagnosis of POTS, you must be anxious. But um, that I have um, uh, a video that I prepared for the EDS uh, Society a couple of years ago that sort of goes through the different um, uh, autonomic function tests that we did in people who are hypermobile and anxious and people who are hypermobile and not anxious and not anxious, not hypermobile, not hypermobile. Do you see the, the, yeah, the, the, the iterations? Um, so I think there, 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 there is this relationship between joint hypermobility and autonomic dysfunction. We've known for a long time that autistic people and people uh, with ADHD seem to be more likely to have um, to experience anxiety. Um, and that may be generalized anxiety, social anxiety, panic disorder, uh, uh, a variety panic attacks, that type of thing, a whole, a whole, um, a whole lot of uh, different types of anxiety. And there's an emerging body of work that also suggests, I mean, and the work that we've just been doing suggests this, that um, in neurodivergent conditions, there are also abnormalities of the flight, fright nervous system, the autonomic nervous system. So we haven't sort of explicitly joined all of the dots together, but there are associations between the three. So we think hypermobility is related to neurodivergence, hypermobility related to autonomic dysfunction, neurodivergence related to autonomic dysfunction, and um, neurodivergence related to anxiety. So it's uh, when, if, if we did a study and we had all that data, we could do some nice modeling to, to, to look, to see at the links. But what's really interesting is there are sort of, um, there's hypotheses and um, qualitative work, I think, out there, uh, rather than quantitative work, that suggests that uh, stimming behaviors or self-soothing behaviors in neurodivergence um, may well be actually an attempt to um, downregulate an overactive autonomic nervous system, and that by um, by engaging in um, repetitive behaviours uh, or stimming, that that actually helps regulate the autonomic nervous system, and that that um, that that may be um, that may be that may be a purpose of, of, you know, kind of an unconscious uh, um, uh, thing that people are doing. That's so interesting. And so we're so close, but have not yet connected all the dots of one thing to the other, to the other, to the other, but we can see one connects to two, two connects to four, four connects to two. We just haven't connected all of them together yet, which we appreciate the work that you were doing in this. Um, you mentioned the ADAPT program during your really excellent interview with Jeannie DeBone on her podcast, Finding Your Range, which we highly recommend listeners checking out. Um, what can you tell us about this program? Uh, so this, um, this arose uh, from work um, that is, is being done at um, Brighton and 
Medical Students Medical School, really inspired by my uh, mentor, um, Professor Hugo Critchley, uh, and my colleague, um, who is now at UCL, Professor Sarah, Sarah Garfinkel, um, who are interested in this concept of something called interoception. Uh, interoception is an unusual word, and people are like, is it interest? Exception, interoception, but no, interoception is um, is the internal sense of what is happening in your body, uh, as opposed to exteroception, which is um, what's happening outside your body, um, sound, that type of thing. Um, and uh, we we have and the very first paper that I published about hypermobility with the brain imaging. Um, we we noticed some interoceptive differences in the hypermobile group compared to the non-hypermobile group. Uh, and alongside this, Hugo and Sarah um, noticed a relationship between um, being uh, sensitive to your internal bodily sensations and um, anxiety and they developed a paradigm uh, to um, which aims through feedback biofeedback of what is happening in your body this is for example using your heart rate as a as an interceptive measure a, a um, an interceptive training um, paradigm uh, to reduce anxiety and my colleagues um, have demonstrated that this interceptive training paradigm is effective at reducing anxiety in autistic individuals. We finished a big randomized control study um, just before COVID, uh, and that was published last year. So we know um, that um, body-focused therapies may actually be helpful in reducing anxiety. So I thought, well, the hypermobile people have interoceptive differences too. Why not uh, adapt the, um, the biofeedback therapy, the interoceptive training therapy to incorporate um, some kind of psychological support for anxiety as well that focuses on how we interpret and think about bodily sensations so a combined approach um, uh, and we um, we developed this uh, therapy and we called it adapt therapy uh, which stands for altering dynamics of autonomic processing therapy and we um we we'd started uh, doing a, a randomized well we'd piloted it and it was um it was possible to do and seemed to be uh, going well and we were just about to um to to start the the full randomized control trial when uh covid hit and uh, we had to think very creatively about how were we going to do this biofeedback therapy that requires people to be connected to something that measures their heart rate. So a pulse oximeter, which we normally did in the, um, in the lab at the university. And so we were, during, um, during COVID, we worked uh, with a software company and we actually, um, we developed a way of delivering the interceptive training part of this therapy 
on a tablet in people's homes. So we were able to do the randomized control trial of um, ADAPT uh, during COVID. And we, uh, our uh, postdoc Sam uh, presented the results to our department uh, yesterday, which is uh, very exciting. We, we hope to publish soon. Um, and uh, we found um, we found that it was helpful in improving anxiety, but we also found that lots of hypermobile people and people may have experienced this themselves in their homes um, have difficulties with the pulse oximeters because probably of circulation difficulties, Raynaud syndrome. Um, so this is something that we are we're thinking about you know um how how can we take these things forward if people um if people are having circulation issues and that would and this would probably apply because it's to do with how light uh passes through your finger um it would probably apply to people trying to use mobile phones and other technologies to measure their heart rate as well so we're we we we're, we're working on developing this to make it more accessible um, because um, that's important uh, and we're also working on um, on trying to um, get further funding to um, show um, how this therapy would work compared to standard therapies in the NHS or other healthcare services. So ADAPT is a promising potential intervention for hypermobility and anxiety, um, but it's not, it's not available commercially or, or in clinical practice. It was a research trial. What was good, though, was that during COVID, um, people, um, you know, were really struggling to access mental health support. So uh, the participants, um, the overwhelming majority of them were very, um, very you know pleased and happy to have taken part because there wasn't much else going on and and um also to take part in a therapy where people understood what hypermobility is and i think that made a big difference and could have been something that you have to kind of figure is that um is that part of the effect having someone who understands what what your experience is does that actually help the therapeutic relationship and uh, that's definitely something to to think about. And um, is is there value in having? And I don't know. I mean, there might be different people practicing throughout the world in having uh, therapists who, you know, who's talking therapists who are who are specialised in hypermobility and all the different um, things that can go with that. That's a really interesting point. It makes me think that it would be fascinating to have a comparison group that has, they're not doing the ADAPT program specifically, but working with somebody who is knowledgeable and, and that kind of thing to try to remove any kind of like placebo type-ish effect. Yes, no, exactly, exactly. And I think I think that is really uh, important. And in fact, I published a, a study of, mm, last year, maybe the year before, time has <laughs> merged into one where I was when I was um, working as a consultation liaison psychiatrist in a general hospital we um, 
we were giving psychological support to patients with something called inflammatory bowel disease. So that's Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. Um, and we found that by providing psychological support um, in, a, in a pilot, uh, that that not only improved anxiety and, um, and depression symptoms, but it also improved bowel symptoms as well. So really showing the, the, the advantages of brain body of, um, but it was having, I'm sure, having a, a therapist who was interested and invested in the experiences of people with inflammatory bowel disease would have made a huge difference to, um, to the therapeutic report. So, um, yeah, no, so that, that is, um, that is, uh, that is really interesting, but I think as, as people get more interested in hypermobility, this will hopefully naturally evolve in terms of, uh, a specialism. And one idea that I had as, as an anesthesiologist and, and struggling at times to find a digit where you could get the pulse oximeter to work in the cold operating room and people are vasoconstricted. So you're moving it around. And, you know, we had also had ear probes though. Oh, yes. We had them too. We had those too. Okay. You did. <laughs> and our research assistant, Georgia, um, uh, was, uh, you know, over Zoom trying to get people to put it kind of ear senses on their toes as well. Yeah. We were very hard on their uh, nose, on their nares, you know. Yeah. On their nares, they were yeah. having, you know, going off and warming up their hands. And right. um, really, um, uh, we tried all sorts of things, all sorts of things. Um, I Darn mean, it! I thought I had an. I uh, thought I had an. You know, no, there is. <laughs> I think you can get. You can. You see it sometimes how people's ears go white in the cold as well. Mm -hmm. So I think. I think the ear. Um, I think any extremity can experience uh, circulatory difficulties. I think. Right. Right. Definitely. Yeah. I think we 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 mainly went with ear sensors in general because we mm -hmm. sort of anticipated that this could be a problem, but it was still it was still a it was still an issue. Interesting. I love that you are researching interoception. I find it such a fascinating topic there. As I talk to patients and they tell me the different sensations that they're having in their bodies. And then I have other people that I know who literally get no information from their body whatsoever. They, they have no clue what's going on until there's a major problem, but they, but it's like they have a switch on a wall rather than a dial. Mm. You know, they, they go from, you know, nothing to everything and they don't feel the little things in between. And, and, um, and it is hard. I think a lot of people really think that they must be quote unquote crazy when they get these different sensations. Cause they've never, you know, I mean, I get this question all the time. Have you ever heard this before? Has anyone else ever told you this before? You know, because they, they think what I'm, I'm weird because I'm experiencing this thing that you, that I don't hear about. So your work has the potential to help so, so many people. Um, so it's, it's wonderful. And you, you've done so much fantastic work, work already. Um, and I know you already have lots of research projects in the works. What research are you most excited about in the future? Well, at the moment, I, I, I am working on a, a couple of, of ideas um, and I'm really excited about a proposal we're trying to put forward uh, about understanding the mechanisms potentially of uh, low-dose naltrexone as a treatment in um, chronic pain uh, to try and uh, work out um, 
because we know there's a few cl small clinical trials here and there and a lot of I imagine that I think there's a lot of patients who are accessing low dose naltrexone um, but what we are really interested to 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 work out is what is happening in the in the brain and the body that uh, could be contributing to its effect uh, because I think there's that's a really interesting thing about medicine is that there are lots of um, drugs that are already in existence for certain conditions that could perhaps be um, reused in other conditions. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine there's slightly less interest in, in, in trying to, you know, do research in things that you can't market because they're already, right. they're already there. They're already there um, and maybe quite cheap. Um, so, uh, uh, like well, I was working when I worked in the, um, immunopsychiatry service, um, that my uh, colleagues at BSMS set up, uh, we were using, um, in, uh, patients who had a mildly raised, uh, CRP, which is a level of inflammation in the blood. Um, we were using different types of antidepressant uh so we were using the snris rather than the ssris because there's evidence to suggest um that um if you're inflamed you may benefit more from an snri than an ssri but also some uh anti-inflammatory medicines are also useful for uh mood problems so we we know it's it isn't um it isn't uh, one of uh, my main areas of, it, of expertise, uh, but we know that there is this big relationship between inflammation and mood and feeling states, and they that you know that they influence each other. So, if we if we can identify some of the mechanisms that are going on, whether they're autonomic or inflammatory or um, uh, or yeah allergic or, or or what have you then maybe there are simple medicines that we can use that might help people i prescribe low dose naltrexone all the time and have a lot okay. of people yeah i do and have a lot of people that really you know feel feel it's beneficial but i don't have you know i've read the research and there's uh, i would love to see much more research done uh, on this and especially with regards to you know, dosing and, and everything like that, because of course, part of the challenge is they're getting it from a compounding pharmacy. So there it's often costs them more than getting a medication through their insurance company. And so, although you could do more fine tapering of the medication that also is very costly for the patient. So it's kind of trying to balance, um, you know, those, all of those different aspects. So um, that's, that's, that's really fascinating and great that you're, that you're studying that. That's exciting. And also we're trying to take the ADAPT work forward and um, other work about the um, complexity at, you know, between mental and uh, physical health. Mm -hmm. And for people who want to read more of your papers and learn more about the incredible work that you're doing, where can they read more about you? And, and um, for, are you, I don't know if you're taking patients in, in the UK or what, what all should people know? <laughs> 
So I um, I work, um, as I said, in a neurodevelopmental service, uh, which is in, in our national health service. So I, I don't have a private practice. I see patients who, who live in Sussex, uh, which is where um, Brighton is in the UK, who um, uh, are looking for a ADHD or autism or Tourette syndrome diagnosis. That's my clinical practice. But I have, um, if you if you just Google Jessica Reckles BSMS, which is where I work, BSMS, um, uh, my um, staff profile will come up and there's lots of links to articles and current projects because um, I forgot to say, you know, new projects. I'm funded to do a really exciting project in brain fog that has been stalled because of uh, COVID and some technical issues. But we're really hoping to start that soon. So that's brain fog in postural tachycardia syndrome. Anyway, uh, yeah, there's the um, the website, and then you can follow me on Twitter. I'm Bendy Brain, and then I am I'm just starting out on Instagram, and I'm Dr Bendy Brain on Instagram um but uh yeah there there's lots of information on my um on my staff profile and a, a link to all of the publications and where possible i we we have really endeavored uh to publish um open access so the 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 articles that i've been talking about today um the neurodivergent one the one about the autonomic symptoms in um mental health uh, patients and the brain imaging one uh, they are all um, all open access so anyone can read them that, that's, that's wonderful. fantastic yeah yep and I know um, I've found several um, interviews with you or lectures that you've done that I can find on YouTube and watch with you presenting to a variety of different places and those are always excellent so if people are looking to hear more from you that's a, another great source to Here's some of your words of wisdom. So we appreciate all that you are, are doing in this field and for spending your time with us today. You have been listening to Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD. Today we've been speaking with Dr. Jessica Eccles, clinical senior lecturer and MQ versus arthritis fellow with expertise in brain-body interactions, joint hypermobility, liaison psychiatry, neurodevelopmental conditions, and immunopsychiatry. Dr. Eccles, your research is incredibly valuable. And I, I think one of the things that we both agree is so wonderful about what you do is that it has such a, you have an eye on the practical application of it too, um, that you have these real world issues that you are trying to solve, helping open up access um, to people who are neurodivergent or hypermobile, helping the medical community to be able to see people more clearly. Um, you just, you have such a clear eye on trying to have that real world application um, in your the research that you do, and we are so grateful for it. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I learned so much as as always. Every single time I li I listen to you speak, I learned so much. So I really so we're both so grateful. Thank you. Bye. 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 Thank you for joining us for this episode of Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD, where we explore the intersection of health and hypermobility for dancers and other aesthetic athletes. If you found this information valuable, please share it with a colleague or friend and leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Remember to subscribe so you won't miss future episodes. If you want to follow us on Instagram, it's at bendy underscore bodies and our website is www.bendybodies.com bendybodies.org.
If you want to follow Bendy Body's founder and co-host Dr. Bluestein on Instagram, it's at hypermobilitymd, all one word, and her website is www.hypermobilitymd.com. If you want to follow co-host Jennifer Milner on Instagram, it's at jennifer.milner, M-I-L-N-E-R, and her website is www.jennifer-milner.com. Thank you for helping us spread the word about hypermobility and associated conditions. We want to hear from you. Please email us at info at bendybodies.org to share feedback. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are solely of the co-host and their guests. They do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of any organization. The thoughts and opinions do not constitute medical advice and should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever. This information is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease as this information is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please refer to your local qualified health practitioner for all medical concerns. We'll catch you next time on the Bendy Bodies Podcast. Bye.